Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do something for us if we ask you. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered him, Allow us to sit at your right and your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We are able, they told him. Jesus said to him, You will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those it has been prepared for. When the other ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles dominate them, and their men of high positions exercise power over them. But it must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Uh, Joe read there from Mark 10, uh, 35 through 45. Uh, and it made me think of uh, an email I got a few weeks back. It was actually about two months back from the principal at our school. The principal, once a month, would send out an email and it you know, uh, recognizes students for having certain qualities and their student of the month for kindness or student of the month for compassion. And uh, he, there is one for each grade uh, or each subject rather throughout the school. And the principal uh, had nominated one kid for student of the month, and it said uh, that he was nominated for the leadership award for showing servant leadership. The, uh, my coworkers who sat right behind me read this email. We all got it at the same time. We're all sitting in there. And the two uh, behind me started going, servant leadership? What is that? Like, I, have, I don't even have a concept for what that means. They're like, what is the principal even talking about here? Servant leadership. They, they couldn't figure out whether it was, it meant that he, this student had a bunch of servants that he was leading, like that was one joke they made, or that it was just totally messed up. Why? Because leaders don't serve in their minds. Leaders have people serve. Leaders have people serving them or serving their cause. But a leader doesn't serve in their mind. To them, to show leadership is not to serve someone else, but to be served. Now, it probably wouldn't surprise you that my principal is a Christian man. And he sees leadership in a totally different light than my other co-workers do. And that is really what we are seeing here in this passage today. Two different ideas of what leadership and being in a position of honor means. James and John uh, had the nickname the Sons of Thunder. So these guys are not known for being gentle or quiet. They are known for their loud, brash ways. They were probably pretty obnoxious to everyone, I would imagine, when you get that nickname. You know, they're like, oh man, here they go again. And here are James and John in all their boisterous splendor, asking to be, sit at Jesus' right and left when He comes in glory. To be honest, that shows a lot of arrogance 
and it shows a lot of uh, self-preservation. They are looking out for themselves. It's selfish ambition on their part. They're not trying to supplant Jesus here. They recognize that He is the Messiah, that He is the one who is ultimately going to be coming in glory. But when He comes, they want to be the ones who are at His right and His left. Now, it's somewhat understandable that when Jesus is glorified, they want to be there for it because they've done so much of their, they've given up so much in their life in order to follow Jesus. James and John gave up the family fishing business. They follow Jesus. Following Jesus was not easy. It was a hard life. It was not a life of luxury. It was a life of sleeping out who knows where without you know, a permanent place to stay. It was a life of traveling. It was a life of, of being rejected by those in society who had positions. And it meant spending your days with the poor and the mistreated and the outcast. It was not an easy life to follow Jesus. And so they are wanting something from that. But the problem is that they're wanting something for themselves in this. They are looking out for themselves and not for the good of others. They want to be you know, number 2A and 2B in the pecking order here. They are asking for positions of honor that would have authority, that would have a place over people, over the other disciples. And that's where the real problem is in what they are asking. And even if you notice the language and how they ask, very boisterous, very self-serving. We want you to do something for us, Jesus. We want you to do whatever we ask of you. Very, you, know, you, you see there, the heart is very selfish in what they're doing. Now this comes after Jesus has already once had to rebuke his disciples because as uh, this was a couple chapters or a chapter back in chapter nine, that as they are traveling along, the disciples uh, had basically broken out in an argument over which one of them was the greatest. And uh, uh, Pastor Michael Davis preached on this a few weeks back. He was a guest preacher from uh, Genesis. And he preached on that. And Jesus had to rebuke them then, saying, you guys don't really even know what greatness is. You have it all backwards. The, the, who's really going to be great is the person who puts themselves last. And Jesus is going to have to remind them of this again later in this passage. But to start with, he, he addresses James and John by telling them, you guys don't even know what you're asking. You have no clue. Their idea of what Jesus was as the Messiah is still wrong. Even though they know, and Jesus has told them on on a few occasions now, that He is going to have to suffer, and He's going to have to die, and He's going to have to rise again in order for that glory to come, they still aren't getting it. They don't get that Jesus is coming to establish a heavenly kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, not a political kingdom here on earth. Very likely what is in their mind right now is that Jesus is going to be sitting on the throne of David in Jerusalem. He's going to have kicked out the Romans, you know, the Roman invaders who have treated the Jewish people so terribly. He's finally going to kick them out. He's going to rule them. And they want to be at his right and his left when he is in that glory. Right? They want to be his right hand and left hand men. They want honor. They want position. They want authority. And they are totally misunderstanding what Jesus has come to do. 
He tells them, you don't even know what you ask. And the biggest part that's clear, they're still not understanding the suffering that Jesus is going to have to go through. They don't understand that His death is necessary, that He must die. They don't see any of this yet. All they see is their selfish ambition. And so Jesus rebukes them there. He says, you don't know what you ask. And then He asks them, can you drink from the cup that I'm going to drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized? Now, the cup symbolizes wrath. That was a, a sim, used as symbolic language for wrath. In other words, Jesus is saying He is going to have to have wrath poured out on Him. And it's the wrath of God that will be poured on Jesus. But the disciples don't understand it to that extent yet. They don't understand what it really means for Him to be baptized. It means that He is going to suffer and die and rise again. That is His baptism. Now, they say they're able, right? This is James and John. This is the sons of thunder. They're confident in their abilities. They're confident in themselves. They're confident that they will be able to do this. And Jesus even agrees with them. He says, yes, you are going to drink from that cup. You are going to have that baptism. Not that theirs would be exactly the same, right? James and John do not die for our sins. Their death doesn't replace ours. But they are going to join in the sufferings of Jesus. He is telling them that right here, right now. They will have that. And in fact, by Acts 12, we see that James is put to death by Herod's order. And we know that John will go on to be a political prisoner of Rome because he was proclaiming the Gospel. He will go to where political prisoners were held and forced to work on the island of Patmos. And he will spend years of his life there. And even though John actually ends up living a very long life, it is a very hard life, full of suffering, full of hardship for the sake of the Gospel. And so they will drink from that cup. They will be baptized with that baptism. But even in knowing and doing that, Jesus knowing they will go through that, He says, to give my right, the seat to my right and to my left isn't even my call. It's the call of God the Father. He says, that's for whom it has been prepared. Jesus could not guarantee that. But... While Jesus makes it clear that the disciples will follow Him in this suffering and in uh, giving up their lives for others, it is not out of character for Jesus to say, I cannot guarantee you those seats. And it doesn't diminish who Jesus is either. Jesus is fully God. He is fully God, just as He is fully man. He is the set, what we call the second member of the Trinity and all three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, we put it this way. They are all of one essence. So they are one. They are eternally existing in three persons. And within the Trinity, you have Jesus willingly submit to the authority of God the Father. He willingly submits always, recognizing God the Father's authority over everything and that's what he is doing right here that even when he comes in glory 
when everybody else, when their knees will bow at His appearing, His name, because He will have the name above all names, it says, because of what He does, because He submits to the will of the Father, that even then, Jesus says, it's not my call to say who is going to be there with me at my right and my left. God the Father has prepared that place for people He has called to be there. And He, Jesus, doesn't have the authority. He willingly gives that authority to God the Father. Now, while Jesus says that, and while it is ultimately God who will place people there, that doesn't make it random who will be there. In other words, God is not just arbitrarily plucking people for this position. Rather, our actions, our decisions play into that. They play into who will be great in the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells them exactly what it will look like for those to be those who are going to be great in the kingdom of God. Now, it, it, right as he gets ready to do this, the other disciples are all getting upset, understandably, with James and with John. I don't know if you've ever had someone in front of you essentially ask to have authority over you. But it's rather off-putting. All right? I, I've seen it happen. I've had jobs where I've literally had uh, one of my coworkers ask our boss to essentially be in authority over me and our other coworkers. And you're sitting there going, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I work just as hard as you do, if not harder than you do, right? That's, we always think we're the hardest workers. Like, what right have you to ask our boss to be an authority over me? Who are you to do this? Right? Now, what motivates that? What motivates that is that we realize that if they have that position, we don't have that position. If they have that authority, then we don't have that authority. And so even that response by the disciples is actually a rather selfish response. Right? They're going, whoa, 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 whoa. They become indignant because it means James and John are going to be in a place they want to be. So all 12 disciples here are all messed up in their thinking because they all want what's best for themselves and not what's best for everybody else. They are concerned primarily about, number one, themselves. And so Jesus is going to call them all over and He's going to correct them in their thinking. He's going to totally change their thinking and he does it by first drawing attention to how the the leaders of the gentiles so the gentiles are going to be anybody who's not jewish and at this point in time they are actually under the authority of gentiles right they are under the authority of the roman empire they're under the authority of caesar ultimately they're under the authority of herod who the romans have placed in power over them and Jesus says, if you look at them, how do they exercise authority? They exercise authority in a way that serves them. When they exercise authority, it's so that Caesar is served, so that Caesar is glorified, so that Herod is served, so that Herod is glorified. That's what the leaders of the Gentiles, that's what they do. Jesus says, amongst you, it should be the exact opposite. It's two totally different views of how someone should lead. There's a really great illustration of this in the movie Braveheart. In Braveheart, William Wallace is talking with Robert the Bruce, and 
Uh, if you don't know who Robert the Bruce was, it, basically at this point, he was the man who had the best claim to the Scottish throne. The king of Scotland had died without an heir. The king of England was like, well, then I'm your king now. And the Scottish are fighting back against that. William Wallace was leading this charge. And he's having a discussion with Robert the Bruce. And he said, there's a fundamental difference between you and me. He said, you think the people of this country exist to provide you with position. He said, I think that your position exists to provide the people of this country with freedom. That's two totally opposing views. You have the view of the leaders are there to be served versus the leaders should be serving the people that they are in authority over. Two diametrically opposed views. And Jesus says, for you, it's to be the latter. If you are going to be a leader, if you're going to be great in the kingdom of God, you're going to be great because you're serving the needs of others. Don't look at Caesar. Don't look at Herod for how you should lead. He said, look at the servant. Look at the slave. That's how you lead. It's totally opposite of what you would think. It's completely backwards. In leading, you will actually be serving the needs of others. You will not be having them serve you. You will not hold your authority over people. You will use your authority to serve those who you have authority over. Now the great thing about Jesus is is Jesus doesn't call people to do things that He hasn't done Himself or that He wouldn't do Himself. If you think of Jesus' life up to this point, it has been a life of service. And who had a higher position than Jesus? Right? Jesus gives up His position in heaven in perfect unity with the Father. He gives up that position to become one of us. To become a human. To take on all that that meant. The hunger, the tiredness, the soreness, everything that would go with that. He didn't, and when he came, what does he do? He becomes the son of a carpenter. He didn't become the son of Herod so that he could rule over that. He didn't become the son of Caesar so that he would essentially rule over all the known world. He comes as a carpenter's son. And he learns the trade of a carpenter. And then when he comes, and he comes to the people that he has, has come to save, what does he, who does he go to? He goes to the outcast. He goes to the sick. He goes to the disabled. He doesn't go to those who are in power to serve them. He comes to serve the common people. He comes to serve the lowest of the low. The tax collectors. The fishermen. That's who He calls as His disciples. Jesus came and He served. He came as a servant and he tells them how he's ultimately going to serve them, is that he is going to give his life as a ransom for many. His ultimate act of service would be to die on the cross for our sins. He gave up all of that, everything he had in heaven, to come down to die on the cross, to serve people who would reject him, to serve people who would abuse Him, to serve people who would ultimately call out for His execution. That was why Jesus came. 
that is totally opposite of what we expect out of our leaders, those in authority. It was totally opposite of what his own disciples were expecting, as is obvious from the question James and John started off this passage with. It's totally opposite. But because Jesus was willing to do that, we should be willing to do that as well. I want you to think about that for a moment. Dwell on it for a moment. That you and I were the ones who were worthy of God's wrath. The cup of God's wrath should have been poured out on us. The death that Jesus died, we should have died. Why? Because we are sinners. Unlike Jesus who came willingly, always perfectly subjecting Himself to the will of God the Father, we have fought against the will of God the Father. We have directly disobeyed what He has called us to do in our lives. We deserved that wrath, not Him. And yet Jesus served us. He was our ransom. Right? He was the price for our freedom. We were the ones who were captive. And yet He willingly came and gave His own life for us. Dwell on that for a moment. Because it's only when we view Jesus that way that we can see this call to serve others clearly. We have to look through the lens of the Gospel in order to do this. Because otherwise it doesn't make any sense. Otherwise, if you're in authority, you should be having people serve you, right? That's the natural way. But we're not called to act the natural way. We are called to act the godly way, the Christ-like way. So when we have that clear picture of how Jesus, the Son of God, has served us, we can let go of our desires to be served and to start serving others. So there are two areas I really want to focus in on this morning uh, in response to this call from Jesus for us to be servants, for us to be slaves to all. And the first thing I want us to focus on is repentance. We need to repent from when we have tried to use others for our own benefit. When we have tried to use others, have them serve us so that we are great, so that we benefit. And we've all done it, right? We have all used others for our own honor, for our own glory, so that we look good, so that our needs are met, even if theirs are not. And there's absolutely hope that you can do this. In fact, John himself would go on to write in his first uh, letter, in 1 John 3, he says this, he says, He, meaning Jesus, laid down His life for us. Or I'm sorry, he says, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. See, eventually John got it. John, God, the Holy Spirit, worked in his life. He saw how Jesus had laid down his life for him, and he realizes that we are called to do the same. It's totally different from John at the beginning of this passage. right? We we, we see how John has changed, and there is absolutely hope for each and every one of us that we can do the same. We can repent. We can turn from using people for our own glory, for our own needs, and start to serve them instead. I was actually really convicted as I, I was going through this 
uh, one specific area where uh, I feel I use it more for, for myself than anything else was actually in how I pray. Uh, I find that my prayers can sometimes echo James and John here. That as I'm praying, I'm praying rather selfishly. And not that we shouldn't go to God with our needs. He wants us to go to Him with our needs and our desires. But I I noticed that a lot of my prayer was focused on that on a day-to-day basis. That it was on me and my what I need as opposed to focusing on praying for others. And so that was one area I was uh, just extremely convicted in. Uh, you know, but sometimes I view my students that way. Right? My students are here to serve me ultimately when it should be the other way around. And so when they don't serve me, I get upset with them and I yell at them or berate them. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not actually too bad most of the time, but uh, on occasion that hits me. When, when my focus is wrong, when my view is that my my students should be serving me, I react in a poor manner to them because they don't want to serve me most of the time. And ultimately, I'm there to serve them. I'm their teacher who's there to serve them uh, and, and build them up. And so, you know, I'm sure you have your own areas where you can think of where you think, you know, I really, in this area, in this relationship, really use that person to serve my needs as opposed to me being like Christ, laying my life down for them, and serving them. And so the first thing we need to do is repent of that. And the second thing I want us to do is to think and pray about who we are called to serve and start putting in action plans to serve them. Now the great thing is, is you're not going to have to think very hard about who this is. It's not like some trick question. It's not somewhere you don't need to go halfway across the world to find people to serve. Uh, There are plenty of people that you can serve in your day-to-day life. Now, it is wonderful there are people who are called halfway around the world to serve those people and to, uh, to bring the gospel to them. But for most of us, it's right where we are that we are called. And uh, we have plenty of work to do there. Let me give you just my own example. I have a wife, I have four children, and I have my mother and father, and we all live under one roof. I go to work, I have roughly 40 co-workers who I see on a daily basis, and there are 380 students roughly in the halls of my school. There are nearly 100 men, women, and children who call Restoration Road Church their home. And I'm surrounded by neighbors who, who range from young families to people who have uh, you know, had their spouses die and their children have grown and moved away and they're living by themselves. And if you total all that up on, on a day-to-day basis or at the very least on a weekly basis, that's almost a thousand people in my life that I can be serving. I don't need to go far to look for people to serve, and the truth is neither do you. There are so many people that we can be serving. So uh, let's break this down into three groups of people that we need to be serving instead of seeking to be served by. So the first group is absolutely our family. How are you serving your family? 
the, the Bible actually describes someone who, who claims Christ and yet doesn't take care of the needs of their own family as someone who is worse than a non-believer. That's pretty serious language there. Uh, and so we need to focus there first. We need to focus on the needs of our family. Certainly one way we provide for our family is for their physical needs, right? We work hard so that our family has food, so they have clothes, and so they have a roof over their heads. And that is one way we serve our family. But if I'm honest, that's probably the easiest way to serve our family. Because it requires our time doing a job to get a paycheck, but it doesn't require the harder, the weightier things, which is to love our family. It's much harder to really love your family than it is to provide for them physically. Think about how hard it is. What do you want to do when you come home from a long day of work? You want to kick your feet up. You, you want to eat dinner and maybe have some dessert and watch a show. I know that's my inclination. I just want a moment to rest, right? But that's not, I, I could look at, oh, I've served my family today because I went and did my job, but that's just one part of it. And think about how much damage has been done in families by parents who have viewed their obligation to their family as just that. Just this, if I take care of their physical needs, then I've done my duty. And that is the... Uh, not serving your family. That, that starts to serve your family, but it's not fully serving your family, not as Jesus has called us to. And so it's going to look like having that conversation with your spouse, even when the show or the game is on, that you want to watch. Sometimes it means letting your spouse watch that show or a game. They've had a long day. They've had a long week. They need some time to unwind. Uh, my wife did this for me yesterday. I really wanted to watch the Germany-Sweden game in the World Cup. Right? I, I literally have not watched one World Cup game, which is a big deal for me because I'm a sports fanatic. I, I openly admit I love competition. And I especially love soccer. I think it's a great game, and I, I love the World Cup. And even though the U.S. is unfortunately not in it this year, it's still something I want to watch. Germany is my second team, so cheering for them. And so my wife yesterday, uh, I, I woke up that morning, I took the kids out for Dunkin' Donuts, I'd played some games with them, and my, my wife realized I wanted to watch this game, and she kept the kids away from me, because they kept wanting to play more games, and she's like, no, uh, Dad, let Daddy rest. Let Daddy watch the game. And I got to sit and watch the Germany game, Germany won. Very exciting. But it was a way that Sarah served me that day she let me watch that game because she knew that I needed a break and so we can serve our spouses uh, that way and we can serve our children by playing those games with them you know hi-ho cherio is not the most invigorating game I've ever played I hate that little bird that when you land on him you got to put all the cherries back out that game just drags sometimes but you know what Hannah loves that game and Kylie, she's okay with the game, but she loves spending time with the family to play those games. Or Monopoly Junior, which has no skill involved at all. It's all luck, which drives me nuts. But like those games, that time with the, the kids is worth it. It's me serving them 
saying, I'm going to do this, even though to me the game is not great, it is to them. And they know their dad loves them and they, they're having that, that great time with their dad. I'm serving them in that way. And it might mean also serving your parents as they age and they can't do the things that they were once able to do with ease. And so you shovel the walk or you mow the grass or you cook them dinner or you take them to doctor's appointments. We serve our family. We are called to serve our family and to meet their needs. And when we, you know, we all have different roles in a family. There are family members that we have to lead in certain areas. But we are called in leading them to actually serve them, not to lord that authority over them. So that's our first group we need to look at. The second group is our church community. Our church, we actually call it our church family, right? There are opportunities to serve your church family all the time. There's the really obvious ones, right? Like the greeters at the door, or those who come in and uh, maybe a little less obvious, like scrubbing the toilets, or cleaning the glass windows, or things like those. There are some obvious ways that you can serve your church family like that. And please do that. God has gifted us each uniquely, and He gave us those gifts in order to serve the church. And so we can come to church. Uh, we don't want to come to church with the attitude of, I need to be served while I'm at church, but I need to serve others while I'm at church. And so again, you know how you've been gifted. Use those gifts to help serve the church. But it goes far beyond Sunday morning. It also goes to things like when a member of our church has a newborn. If you've ever had a newborn, you know the chaos that ensues when you bring that newborn home. And it becomes very difficult to make an edible meal even. And so one way we serve people excuse me, in the church is to make meals for them when things like that happen. You know, it's a joyous event, but it, man, they need some help. And so we can serve each other by making a meal for them. We can serve each other by going out to coffee with someone. We can serve each other by, even though our schedules are busy, taking time out of that schedule to visit someone who we know is struggling and who needs just some time to be with another person from the church where they can be loved. We need to serve each other here in the church because Jesus served us. And because He served us, we can gladly serve each other. And then the final group is that our community. We need to serve our community. And what that means for each of us is going to be a unique call. Because we all have different communities. Right? It would be very strange for me to show up to Joe Gore's neighbor asking how I could serve them when I live in Peabody and I've never met them. Okay? It, but Joe Gore can serve his neighbors. They know him. He is in their life. So he has a unique call to his neighbors. I have a unique call to my neighbors. We each have a unique... Right? I don't work with you. You have your own co-workers who you can serve. So we need to be serving our community, whether it looks like mowing the grass for the elderly neighbor, or whether it looks like being a parent for a child whose parents are sort of there, but not really. And they need, someone, they need to know that someone loves them and someone cares for them. We need to be there for the new people who are at work and trying to fit in. 
right? It's scary starting a new job when you don't know anybody and there's already those established groups there and you've got to come in. We should be the person serving them, offering them the way in to the company or the school so that they know people, so that they know that someone is, is there to care for them. They have someone they can go to with questions and complaints and all those. We need to be serving our community. The amazing thing is, as we serve all these people, is that God in His, his plan and His wisdom and His sovereignty will use you serving people to reach others for the Gospel. You don't have to look far to do this. Again, we don't have to go somewhere else to find someone to share the Gospel with. Someone who needs to hear the Gospel. Every day we come in contact with them. And the way that we can share it in a way that they will understand and be open to is to serve them. Because the Gospel is a story of service. It's not a story of us serving, but it's a story of us being served by Jesus. And if we want the Gospel to spread to our family, we want it to spread to our co-workers and to our neighbors, if we want them to have their sins forgiven just as we have, then we're going to have to seek to serve them and to honor them. Because in serving them, they're going to see the difference between leadership in the church and leadership in the world. Between leadership that is motivated by selfish gain and leadership that is motivated by love. Because it's totally foreign to them. It's like my two co-workers who just had no idea, who laughed at the idea of servant leadership. It's foreign to them. They don't understand it. Matthew 5.16 puts it like this. It says, Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If we want people to know and love God, then we have to serve them just as Jesus has served us. We aren't going to do it by being like James and John at the beginning of this passage. If we are lording our position over them, every chance we get, even if that means it's a new coworker, think about it with the same, they come in at the same position, you've been there longer. You're kind of in that position over them. You know the ins and outs, right? And if we, if we treat them like James and John as, as we want this authority over them and they're there to serve us because they're the new guy, what does that say to them? That we love ourselves. But if we are there to serve them, to reach out for them, it says that we love them, and that will be very different than how most people are going to treat them. So we cannot spread the gospel by being like James and John. We can only do this by laying our lives down for others, just as Jesus has laid his life down for us. And I admit that that seems like a daunting task because it means that you're always the one giving of yourself. It means that you're always the one who is putting the needs of others before your own. And if you start to want to back out of it at this point, and be like, that's too hard, or maybe I'll do it here and here, but not there. I want to bring us back again to what Jesus said. What did Jesus say? He said, just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, 
and to give His life a ransom for many. Remember that. Jesus came to serve us. He came to be our ransom so that we could be set free from sin and death. Let us remember that and let it motivate us to be great in the kingdom of God, to serve others, to lay our lives down for them so that our Heavenly Father is glorified through our actions.